Farm Talk on CFRU 93.3 FM. Welcome to another edition of Food Farm Talk where we celebrate food and honor those who champion the cause of food in society. Welcome to another exciting episode of Food Farm Talk on CFRU 93.3 FM in Guelph, Ontario. I'm your host, Emily Duncan, and the show is also hosted by Abdul Rahim Abdullahi. If you didn't tune in last week, you definitely missed out. We aired part one of a collaborative panel discussion, and today we're going to be listening to part two. The Errol Food Institute, in partnership with the Food from Thought Initiative at the University of Guelph, has been hosting a series of webinars that focus on discussions around food, agriculture, and the ongoing COVID-19 pandemic. All these panels discussions feature experts from the University of Guelph sharing their opinions and research around COVID-19 and implications for the food system. So today, during this two-part episode, this topic centers around COVID-19 plus data decisions after disruption. The panel is hosted by Dr. Jeff Wischel, the Dean of the Ontario Veterinary College, and the panelists include Dr. Rosita Dara, who is an Associate Professor in the School of Computer Science, Dr. Amy Greer, a Tier 2 Canada Research Chair in Population Disease Modeling and an Associate Professor in the Department of Population Medicine, Simon Samoji, an Errol Chair in the Business of Food and Associate Professor in the School of Hospitality, Food and Tourism Management. And we also have Dr. Alphonse Weersink, Professor in the Department of Food, Agriculture and Resource Economics. So without further ado, we'll tune in right where we left off last week on the discussion now. Which is a great segue actually to, to Simon, who is, uh, Simon, you're, you're in the business of the business of food and uh, certainly like to hear your opinion. What do, what do the data that you work with tell you uh, about how this pandemic has affected the business of food? So following on from what Alphonse said, uh, and in particular, food prices and accessibility, uh, and how does that sort of speak uh, after the pandemic to to what this uh, this uh, landscape will look? Mm. So yeah, thank you, Jeff. My my area of research is uh, food supply chains and, and food consumer behavior. And uh, the interesting thing is that most of my that the data that I work with is qualitative. It's, it's words, it's phrases, it's meanings, it's understanding, it's not necessarily numbers. Um, but I do a lot of work that does cross into the quantitative demands, sorry, the quantitative area. So I'll, I'll talk across those two. I think there's two sort of related points to what Alphonse was talking about. Uh, 
and just general food supply chain issues that are related to pandemics and what we're currently seeing. So um, we've seen during the pandemic the uh, evidence of the way that the grocery system works. We've seen discussions about the just-in-time inventory management system that grocers use where grocers have data about demand and they then uh, give that data further up the supply chain to their suppliers so they can rapidly replenish stocks based on that demand. And um, during the early days of the pandemic, we saw outages and we saw all that panic buying and the just-in-time system was sort of blamed by some commentators out there uh, for the shortages, which I think is a bit wrong. Um, the system is far more efficient uh, because of just-in-time and there's been discussions about, well, okay, rather than just-in-time systems, let's have more inventory uh, at various points in the supply chain. Um, but higher inventories at wholesale and in distribution centers won't mean that you get more food on shelves. Um, the most important factor is trucks. It's the logistics. It's the movement of product into, into stores. And as an example, the, the Ford government in Ontario moved very quickly in, in mid-March to allow 24-hour-a-day deliveries to stores and that allowed for rapid replenishment so that these outages for for most products were short rather than long so the data that the grocery stores had about demand and their logistics system allowed them and, and the retail council of canada to lobby the government to, to allow them to deliver 24 hours a day so i think it's a good example of you know data allowing for decision making another example sort of related to the pandemic is food contamination and and for the last number of years we've been talking about blockchain and blockchain technology and how it allows sort of greater traceability in the food supply chain um, which is you know it's more data and you know the, the data can be helpful um, but blockchain doesn't solve the problem the problem is say for example food contamination it allows us to understand where the contamination might be happening in the food supply chain but it comes down to how rapidly uh, government, other food safety uh, enforcers can make those public announcements, those recalls. Uh, and so it's really the, the, the value in, of the data and the information is how quickly it's being used. So I think data has been important uh, during the pandemic. It, it has value, um, but it has value in how it's interpreted. As a quali qualitative researcher, I'm always thinking, well, what does it mean? You know, what's the purpose of it, um, rather than what is the number itself? So um, the other angle to this is when it comes to data in the supply chain and the pandemic is cost. Food is a low margin product. The more technology you put into the food system, and technology generally means systems, and systems mean cost. So you've got to then recoup the cost from somewhere else. Consumers want food that is lower and lower in cost or even though in canada we spend somewhere eight nine percent of our basic income on um on food so yeah the 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 system has bent a bit and to follow on alphonse has said it hasn't broken um but data has helped thank you simon yeah you're right canadians are used to a, a very efficient and low-cost food system what uh, of what we're going through now and the things that you've mentioned, what do you predict will be a permanent change as a result of this experience, uh, uh, either on the consumer side or on the, on the, on the food value chain? 
I, I actually will disagree a little bit from Alphonse in that I don't think we'll see a major change. I think what drives the food supply chain is consumers. And we all recognize that there's no such thing as a consumer in, of food in Canada. There's all these different consumers with different needs and wants and behaviors. And we, as researchers, group them and study them. Um, but there is two trends across all consumers in the marketplace, and that is convenience and price. And if you look at any place you buy food now, it, it re revolves around those two concepts. So people have cost pressures, income, incomes are relatively stable and not increasing. If anything, that's gonna get even more under tight pressure because people are losing their jobs because of the pandemic. Um, mortgages are high, and the cost of living is high, but wages aren't increasing. So um, if anything, this pushes more people into the industrial food system that allows them to access food every day of the year at low price from all year around the world. And, and think about the, the quality of nutrition that we get from a, a grocery store system that allows us to get everything uh, at one place. People want convenience. And I sort of relate that back to one place mentality and that I can go to one store and I can get meat, food, meat, vegetables, bakery items, seafood, all my, my toilet clean, everything in one place. So uh, I don't think those are gonna change post COVID. Um, now, I also do work in food prices and we release the food price report each year and, and we've released a COVID-19 update to the food price report uh, in, in mid-March. We, uh, in one week, managed to scramble together a report based on the machine learning work that colleagues in the School of Engineering, particularly Graham Taylor and Ethan Jackson have been doing. And we predicted that food prices are going to be relatively what we expected from our our initial 2020 prediction back in December 2019. Um, but what we have found since then is this pandemic has created this, what I call a cyclone of data. Things are changing so rapidly from 24 hours to 48 hours. You know, three weeks ago, we didn't really have issues, I'll say dumping potatoes or closing of processing plants or the, the, the flour baking craze, now everyone's at home baking bread, and, and all these factors, including the farm labor shortages, impact food prices. So, really, on the uh, really set back a little bit because the data has to come in quickly, and we just don't have mechanisms to get it. A lot of our food price report data comes from our areas outside of Canada because we find that data to be more accurate, and Stats Canada data for most of the food prices comes out once a month and it'll be sort of another month or so before we see the real impact on food prices in Canada. Um, so yeah, we're in this whirlwind situation of data coming at us from everywhere. The, the, the system of food has really been uh, exposed to ordinary people and uh, through various things that I've discussed before. So it's an interesting time. Thank you, that's great. Um, I, uh, I, I have sort of a, a, a final question for all of you that I'd like each of you to answer. Uh, many of you have mentioned uh, while you've been talking of the need either for changes in behaviors, change in regulation, changes in attitudes, um, perhaps um, more work that needed to be done in certain areas. And maybe I'll go in reverse and just ask you to continue on, Simon, because you, you did uh, you know, talk to that a little bit. What would be your message uh, either to the food sector uh, or to regulators uh, or any other stakeholders to try and improve 
the resilience of our food system. You, 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 you talked it up pretty good there, and I, I think you're right. You know, we have been shown to be quite resilient, but are there things that, you know, work that is yet to be done that's being demonstrated from this emergency? Well, I think at its high level, we've, we've realized that, you know, data is important. It can help. Um, but it needs to be accessible, it needs to be analyzable, uh, it needs to be accurate. And I think that really important factor is that the cost of doing all that has to be low. Uh, we're not selling Rolex watches, we're not selling Mercedes Benzes or Ferraris, we're, we're selling food which makes sense on the dollar. Uh, so all, all these, these factors impact our ability to use data. Now, as a message to the, to the food sector, um, I think the, the food sector is, is one that is highly resilient as it is. It, it deals with perishable products. It's used to having to change quickly, be agile, be adaptable to what's thrown at them. Uh, and this has meant that, that they've been doing a lot better than say the automotive sector, which had to shut down all and is, is starting to come back to some extent. Um, but there are other examples. So I, I think um, learning, I think learning and understanding the cost of data are probably two big things. Right, thank you. Uh, working backwards through our speakers, Alphonse, uh, you know, do you have a message for the food or ag sectors? Uh, or regulators uh, that you'd like to, to give at the moment to improve the resilience uh, or the performance or the efficiency of our systems, especially under moments of, uh, of emergency such as we're seeing now. Start again here. Um, so, uh, yeah, I think we're going to have another shock to the system. And what we, what in, after this one is through, we can look back and under, and try to assess what were the, what were the data points that we needed to really understand how to better adapt uh, to, to the shock. And uh, um, because in, you know, agriculture is a biological process. It's not as easy to control as as other sectors, and so, and and we're more vulnerable to those uh, those natural shocks that might occur either to a disease or weather, and and so understanding, uh, at, you know, what could we have done differently uh, to move forward, and I think what sort of data that we can collect. One of the things we haven't mentioned is that just just lots and lots of data. Sometimes there's just too much, and we're overwhelmed with the volume of data. And, uh, and we can't uh, um, amalgamate that data and make, make decisions uh, from it. So what is it, the data that we really need to be able to collect uh, to deal with a future shock to the system such as COVID? Good, excellent, thank you. Uh, Rosita, do you uh, have some further comments on this? Uh, you know, is there a message? I think your message was one perhaps of a need for interdisciplinary work uh, to try and, and bring all the stakeholders together. Could you expand on that? Sure, thank you. Um, so uh, yes, I agree with uh, Simon and Alphonse about um, 
about data part. So what the, the situation we have, uh, we have lots of data. We are overwhelmed with data. And I think there was an estimation in 2014 that there was only 1% of data were being used at that time and by 2020 only 13 percent and that's across all sectors um, so what governments or ag practitioners need to do starting with governments i think uh, we need uh, they need to understand that, that we need new infrastructure a new infrastructure includes uh, wires and servers of course but it also requires some of some new technologies that it's not just a technology piece because identity management technology pieces existed for quite a long time, but it's just because it requires a legal framework around it. It needs, a, as, as you indicated, Jeff, it requires kind of a multidisciplinary and kind of multifaceted approach to address not only just the technology itself, but many other aspects that these technologies require to be able to deploy and use kind of, you know, in a broad uh, situation. Uh, so, um, so new infrastructure with the support of the government, as indicated, we are uh, before we are collecting lots of data, but this data is being collected in, uh, without having a consistent protocols. Uh, it is important to pay attention to standardization so that the, and all system data platforms so that we can integrate different platform at the time of crisis like this that to make to be able to make more uh, uh, kind of a global or regional uh, decision at the regional level that are more accurate um, the other perhaps something that needs to be considered is aside from a standardization we talk about privacy a lot but also there are other aspects uh, ethics uh, semantics of data um, so, and also operationally bringing everybody on board, all the stakeholders, uh, enabling trust and transparency in between stakeholders. This is something that technology on its own cannot enable. It requires uh, best practices, um, it requires policies, um, you know, maybe new regulations uh, and uh, framework and uh, kind of uh, uh, regulations. Uh, and uh, legal regimes basically to enable um, uh, kind of uh, trust and transparency among different stakeholders. Uh, so that, that's something else, another thing that needs to get done. Um, so uh, technology is only one piece that needs to be advanced. And I think that's the easy part. It's the governance aspect as a whole. It's a policy, it's different stakeholders, their roles, their responsibilities, a standardization of data platform, uh, digital ident uh, identity tracing, so that uh, on the online we have a passport to declare our identity and they can trust our identity all together um, and uh, and also one other uh, um, kind of um, item I wanted to point out is digital literacy and digital awareness um, so as technologists we are aware of technology and, and still we are not completely of the consequences ethical consequences and legal consequences and I think in many sectors uh, digital literacy and awareness is uh, lacking perhaps some educational systems around data ownership or, or legal policies and uh, you know agreements uh, which will enable trust when uh, as well uh, the, the, those are also very critical so basically it requires kind of a holistic approach uh, multifaceted with many stakeholders on board to to be able to um, to have better systems that are accessible but in my opinion, as a first step is to start small. We don't want to boil the ocean and that could be responsibility of the government to identify the exact problem 
because uh, there are many problems that we may, be not, we may not be able to tackle right now. Find a problem and then start small and start um, kind of in an iterative way to address that and many other problems that, uh, and after addressing one kind of uh, in iteration, uh, address more and uh, deploy technology and processes and policies as we go on. Thank you, Rosita. So it's a great take home message that, uh, you know, technology is good, but we need to get our governments, governance structures in place first, right, before, uh, before we can do anything else. So, so thank you for that. Um, Amy, do you have anything uh, to add in terms of a, a message to uh, the public, to, uh, to the consumers or to government or to your academic colleagues as to, you know, what we should learn and take away from this emergency? Uh, and yeah. So, so I think that if we're, if we're talking about the agri-food business uh, side of things, I think there are a couple of things that are worth um, considering moving forward. One is that um, the Canadian Pandemic Influenza Plan um, is kind of the national document that we use to outline how we're going to respond when we are faced with um, a pandemic public health emergency. And that plan is, is flexible and adaptable, and, and it's been sufficiently flexible to be able to use it um, in our, our COVID-19 response. I think one of the, the challenges that we're faced with is that um, for businesses, while some businesses um, have had a pandemic preparedness plan um, as a part of their um, human resources um, arrangement, I think that, that we have perhaps underestimated the potential for emerging infectious diseases. I think we have planned um, based on scenarios that perhaps um, are on the lower end of the spectrum. And what this has uh, demonstrated to us is that um, when we have an emerging infectious disease that's highly transmissible and no vaccine candidate in the pipeline, our only option for reducing transmission is to change our behavior very dramatically and very quickly. And I think that those are difficult things to implement for essential services like food production types of industries. Um, and, and we see that with some of the outbreaks um, in processing plants. And so really thinking about um, moving forward, you know, how do we protect workers um, and people who are essential to the, the, the food that we eat, that we require for our families and our communities, um, and, and be prepared to be able to put that on the table to keep them safe um, as a way to protect uh, the supply chain. And I think that's an area that really has surprised me um, over time is just, you know, how, how dramatically this has impacted some businesses that are really critical um, and, and outside of the healthcare sector. And I think we maybe did not put enough uh, focus on, on preparing as individual businesses for these types of possibilities. And I think, you know, University of Guelph is very much focused on, on one health. So thinking about interactions between humans and animals and the environment. And I think, unfortunately, you know, we are at a period of time where the risk for emerging infectious diseases from animals into human populations that are novel to which we do not have uh, any immunity in the human population, that that risk continues to, to increase. And so we need to really think about preparedness proactively um, moving forward, I think. Right, that's a, a great way to, to finish up here, Amy. And 
Uh, I think food was uh, certainly uh, an important item and in the news a lot before the pandemic. Uh, I think uh, it will continue to be and probably interest in food and agri-food systems uh, will be the topic for some time to come. I was gratified to hear our Deputy Prime Minister, Christopher Freeland, uh, speak at a press conference fairly recently talking about, you know, the question, do we need a food emergency plan nationally? Uh, so that shows that at the very highest levels, uh, we're getting attention. Uh, you folks as thought leaders in your disciplines, um, I hope we can find, and I think our Food Institute has a role to facilitate this, uh, a, a, a spot at the table to, to help government and the food sector adapt to this uh, new reality uh, and to, to be better prepared next time. Uh, because we all know that next time, uh, as, as uh, tragic and, and difficult as this time has been, next time could be worse. Uh, especially if uh, the, uh, the pathogen set up uh, in uh, our domestic species, for instance, our, our food animal species uh, as a reservoir. So, so thank you for, for your input. Uh, I appreciate uh, all of your thoughts. And I think uh, those who will tune into this panel discussion will find it uh, you know, very interesting uh, to hear from people who are at the absolute cutting edge of our response to this pandemic. Uh, thank you very much. That wraps up our episode for today. Thank you so much for tuning in to our rebroadcast of these series of webinars that have been organized by the Aral Food Institute and the Food from Thought Initiative at the University of Guelph. The next topic of discussion will be on COVID-19 plus social impacts on rural communities. This is gonna be a fascinating episode um, with lots of insight on how COVID is affecting rural areas. So this episode will be hosted by Dr. Phil Loring, the Errol Chair in Food Policy and Society, and will feature our own co-host, Abdul Rahim Abdullahi. Um, he's an Errol Scholar and a PhD candidate in the Department of Geography, um, and has done a lot of research on rural communities and has a lot to share with this panel. Um, so the discussion will also include Dr. Ryan Gibson, who's an associate professor and the Libro professor in regional economic development. He's in the Rural Planning and Development Program at the School of Environmental Design and Rural Development. We'll also be joined by Dr. Helen Hambley-Odame, who's an associate professor of uh, in the Capacity Development and Extension Program which is also in the School of Environmental Design and Rural Development. And finally, Jackie Epson-Laporte, she's an environmental specialist with the Ontario Ministry of Agriculture, Food and Rural Affairs. So a great, a great selection of panelists and we'll be rebroadcasting this webinar in two parts during our weekly food farm talk shows airing Thursday mornings at 10 a.m. We hope you will tune in next week. Thank you so much for listening and take care.
Thank you for listening to Food Farm Talk. See you next week for another exciting edition.